And hello everyone, and welcome to the very first edition of our brand new podcast, Mideast News Brief, where we provide you a summary of the most important events and developments out of the Middle East from the past week. I'm your host, Winston R. Holland, and I want to use today's broadcast as an introduction to what this podcast is about, who I am, my philosophy on how I'll be presenting the information, and pretty much any other abstractions that pop into my head that feel relevant. So first off, let's talk about this podcast. As I already expressed, this is a show primarily about the most important developments out of the Middle East summarized for you here each week. The Middle East is, of course, a very big place, and there are literally thousands, maybe tens of thousands, of stories that are produced from major news agencies every day about the region. So how are we going to peel back the layers and unyielding insanity of this volatile region to provide a cohesive set of information relevant to you? Well, as the great Macedonian ruler Philip II famously quipped, Divide et impera, divide and conquer. I'm going to divide out primary subjects from secondary subjects and focus on conquering those primary subjects each week as developments arise. Secondary subjects will be discussed as relevant, but there are going to be some primary areas we will be covering. And here they are. Number one, the Israeli-Arab conflict, including general news out of the region, as well as any insightful policy that I come across. Number two, the Syrian civil war, which will inevitably bring discussion of the Iranian-Russian-Syria axis of evil that we have going on. Number three, Iran and its terror proxies, as well as its relationship with Syria and Russia. Number four, multilateral relations between Israel and Arab countries in the Middle East. This one is particularly fascinating as the gains have been literally historic for Israel in this regard. And it's really exciting to watch relationships warm between Israel and its Arab neighbors. Number five, U.S.-Middle East relations for two reasons. First off, I am an American, so, you know, and secondly, and probably more important than that, the U.S. is arguably the most influential nation in the world and impacts Middle East events perhaps more than any other nation. Plus, this is particularly exciting, the Kushner-Greenblatt-Friedman peace plan is likely due out this year. So we'll be watching that closely, and trust me that we will be doing a whole show just on that plan, maybe multiple. Oh, and spoiler alert, don't expect the Palestinians to even read the plan. <laughs> if they do, don't expect them to do everything or anything about it. This has been going on for a long, long time, for decades. There is a history of Palestinians rejecting peace plans, anything, even anything that and everything that they could possibly want. So I'm not expecting much from it. However, it's a fascinating topic, so we're going to delve into it once that becomes available to all of us. So those are going to be the main things. Uh, in terms of news items, those will be my priority. However, there is more to life than geopolitics, thank God, right? And I want this show to be much more 
than reports of international wrangling. Archaeological discoveries, technical and agricultural developments, religious interests, and something near and dear to my heart, suffering of religious minorities will be discussed where applicable. Sadly, human trafficking is an issue in the area, and although it's really my least favorite subject in the world to discuss, uh, it is something I feel needs to be discussed from time to time. So, a little about me. First and foremost, I am a Christian and am very blessed to know and follow Jesus Christ. Religion, and specifically Christianity, is not the focus of the show, however. It is, of course, what I just laid out above. However, I readily admit that being a Christian will, of course, affect my interests, especially when it comes to Israel and biblical archaeology. But as a Christian, I'm called to love all people, Jews and Arabs, not just one or the other, as well as all the other peoples in the earth, and I hope that is clearly conveyed in this and subsequent broadcast. Secondly, I'm a husband to the love of my life and a dad to four amazing children, and consider those to be my greatest relationships after my relationship with Christ. Credentially, I'm a student working on a Master's of Public Policy in Middle East Affairs, so this is an area where I'm studying with a view toward a professional life in the coming years. So, why this podcast? Well, frankly, I enjoy broadcasting. I've been doing broadcasting several years now via Facebook Live videos for our business and have always wanted to do radio, so it seemed podcasting combined with a subject matter I'm working toward expertise in was a great fit. After literally years of consideration, I thought of the conception of Mitty's News Brief back in about 2012. I'm not the fastest when it comes to making making decisions, but after literally years of consideration, prayer, planning, today, February 1st, 2019, appears to be the day to get started, right? Okay, so now to the question you're probably all wondering, especially in this day and age of news. Will this podcast be biased? <laughs> what, a, what a ridiculous question for a broadcaster to ask themselves publicly, right? Well, I'm doing it. There's a diplomatic adage I'll enlighten you with but refuse to employ. Quote, when in doubt, dodge. Well, I'm not going to dodge this one. You are taking the time to listen, so you deserve a straight answer. As a Christian, my desire and responsibility is to share truth. Even truth I may not like, or that may not back up my side, or my particular point of view. So, while like all conveyors of information, I have my political positions, at the beginning and end of the day, it's my responsibility to share accurate information. That is my goal, and that is my commitment to all of you. As a result, you will see me pull from sources from what are considered various spectrums of the political map. Will my personal political positions affect what articles I choose to discuss? Of course it will! <laughs> of course it will! As, after all, this is a news and commentary show. Not just news. And any news outlet that tells you that what they discuss is not influenced by their political opinions is lying. It's pretty obvious from 
any cable news networks you tune into or a newspaper you pick up that they have a point of view that influences the discussion. That's all I'll say about that, but I think that's pretty obvious. That being said, again, I cannot emphasize enough that my goal is to bring truth, even truth I don't like. And I hope that is refreshing to you as the listener, knowing you're not always hearing only one side of the issue. The Middle East is a tough neighborhood, to put it mildly. Terrorist nations, terrorist proxies, terrorist groups, and lone wolf terrorists persistently make their deadly mark on this fragile region, while innocent Jews, Arabs, Christians, Yazidis, and other minority groups suffer the terrible results of the horrifically evil ideology. But, amidst the negativity that daily barrages the headlines, I believe, and at times can even see, a much greater purpose at work, and hold an endless optimism for that region that I cannot and never will shake. My advice to you, for what it is worth, is don't believe all of the negativity. I hope you, like I do, believe God is at work in this region, working all things after the counsel of His will, and will bring an ultimate good far beyond what we can imagine. I can think of no better way to end this introductory podcast than to share one of the reasons for my enduring optimism. It is from the Hebrew Bible in the book of Isaiah, chapter 19, verses 23 to 25. And I quote, In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, modern-day Syria, and Assyria will come into Egypt. That doesn't sound very likely right now, (laughs) does it? But listen, Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. Now get this. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. May God bless all of you, and I look forward to sharing the news with you for the very first time in about 10 seconds. Don't go away. Okay, we are back and ready to dive into the latest developments from the past week. We are going to start off with everybody's favorite terrorist group that has had aspirations to be a caliphate of their own, but this one hits home particularly for me. An ISIS supporter was indicted on January 30th of a federal hate crime charge. Why? Well, inspired by the Tree of Life synagogue massacre in Pittsburgh that took 11 lives in October of last year, he was planning 
a mass shooting of his own at a synagogue in Ohio per the Associated Press. Court documents showed he was aiming to pick a synagogue based on, quote, which one will have the most people. Anti-Semitism is alive and well. And we're going to talk about the ISIS, quote-unquote, caliphate a little later as well. But even if the ISIS caliphate is completely wiped out from a geographical standpoint, and that it has no geographical base, unfortunately, these kind of horrific attacks can continue to go on. That being said, if you can completely wipe out its caliphate, it's certainly going to hurt its PR effort to recruit more terrorists. But more on that in a little bit. Also, as many of you know, Israeli elections are coming up on April 9th. And Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, is bringing his Trump card onto the campaign trail. A short video produced by his campaign features Netanyahu saying that the embassy needs to be in Jerusalem, before that happened, followed by a clip of President Trump congratulating Israel on the U.S. embassy move. An I-24 News and Israel Hayom poll recently showed Netanyahu's Likud party winning by nine seats. Pretty good. However, there are ongoing probes into possible corruption charges, and the Attorney General is apparently going to try to get a hearing in before the election. As some of you may know, there have been corruption charges going on against Netanyahu and even his wife for a long time, but apparently uh, it's not hurting him too badly in the polls because it looks like he's still going to come on top. Uh, that could change, however, if the AG pulls something pretty strong uh, before the elections, April 9th. The Prime Minister's office responded saying, quote, In the most crucial decision in the history of Israeli law, a process that should take 20 months is being squeezed to a few days. It continued, It seems the AG gave in to the pressure used by the left and the media to indict Prime Minister Netanyahu at all costs ahead of elections, his office said. We, of course, will be monitoring the election, and we'll keep you abreast of any further developments, uh, but that's where it stands about right now. And how about this? Speaking of embassy moves, speaking of Israel, speaking of the U.S. embassy move, another country, or rather, the great state of Florida. Yes, Florida did something perhaps a bit unexpected for one of the 50 states in our union. Check this out. The, the Florida cabinet actually recognized Jerusalem as the, quote, eternal and undivided, end quote, capital of Israel on Tuesday, January 29th. Per the Miami Herald, the resolution was brought to the cabinet by Chief Financial Officer Jimmy Petronas, whose office last year pledged an increase in the state's holdings of Israeli bonds. He said he hopes to make a statement that, quote, the interests of Israel are the interests of Florida, end quote. So Florida has a Jewish population of roughly 630,000. So this is a huge sign of support for the Jewish community, especially in light of rampant anti-Semitism continuing in very various places around the world, including, sadly, here in the U.S. So that was a very interesting development. I was not expecting a particular state to do that, but hey, why not? And speaking of the U.S. and Florida and Jews and anti-Semitism, 
it looks like our least favorite bed and breakfast conduit, Airbnb, is in trouble with Florida. 90 days. Yes, Airbnb has 90 days to fix its current anti-Semitic policy of not listing properties specifically owned by Jewish families living in the, quote, occupied territories on its site. On Tuesday also, Governor Ron DeSantis said, Airbnb has 90 days to change its policy or risk losing Florida, since Florida law does not allow the state to do business with any companies that boycott Israel. Yes, your hatred for the Jewish state can come back to bite you, can't it? And if you have this idea that the, quote, occupied territories are a bastion of love and tolerance, your bubble is about to be burst. And by the way, it should be labeled a, quote, disputed territory, not a, quote, occupied territory, but that's another matter we can discuss another time. Okay, so prepare for the bubble to burst. Palestinian Media Watch. If you've never heard of Pollywood, <laughs> that's a whole other, whole other subject uh, than this, but it, it's worth a look up. P-A-L-L-Y Wood. Palestinian Media Watch reports that a Palestinian university in Jericho awards a jailed murderer with, quote, honorary certificate in military science as a sign of appreciation for his role and sacrifice. The article goes on to say, quote, Kareem and Mar Younes, Y-O-U-N-E-S, are Israeli Arab terrorists serving a 40-year sentence for having kidnapped and murdered an Israeli soldier, Avraham Bromberg, in 1980. They are among the Palestinian authorities' so-called, quote, veteran prisoners, and as such are glorified tremendously by the PA. The fact that they have both endured 36 years in prison was celebrated by the PA this month. Under the auspices of PA Chairman Abbas, the Tolkarim District held a, quote, rally of solidarity and Mar Yunus's honor with the participation of the Ta Deputy Chairman and Abbas's representative, Mahmoud Al-Alul, the Ta Central Committee member, Tafik Tarawi, and Tolkarim District Governor, Issam Abu Bakr, Director of PLO Commission of Prisoners Affairs, Kadri Abu Bakr, and PA-funded prisoners, Club Chairman Kadua Fares. This is like the who's who of the PA that are here in this thing. Article continues. At the event, Abbas's deputy Al-Alul, quote, conveyed the blessings of President Abbas and the leadership to prisoner Mar Yunus, his family, and all of our heroic prisoners. It was also announced at the event that the PA's Al-Istiklal University in Jericho, the Palestinian Academy for Security Sciences, is venerating murderer Mar Yunus and awarding him with an honorary certificate. Quote, the Board of Governors of Al-Istiklal University has decided to present prisoner Mar Yunus with an honorary certificate in military science as a sign of appreciation for his role and sacrifice. Commemorating the anniversary of Karim Yunus's arrest, official PATV honored him in a filler that it broadcast several times. It included this poster of him, which I'll have the link up on the website, 
referring to him and other terrorist prisoners as, quote, brave, brave. So, here's a question I have for you. If you're one of these types that sees a moral equivalent between Israel and the Palestinians, and think that we just need two states for two peoples living side by side in peace and harmony, what, what does this article say to you? And that's why I quoted it so much in length, because it's very illustrative of the situation in Israel right now. I mean, how does this affect you? We already know that the Palestinian Authority doled out over $347 million to families of terrorists in 2017. Is this a state you can negotiate peace with? Or is this a terrorist state? I report, you decide. And hey, if you're thinking right now, you only report pro-Israel stuff, anti-Palestinian stuff. Here's something that's reprehensible on the other side. Five IDF soldiers were charged with beating Palestinian detainees, ANI News reports. Quote, according to an indictment filed in an Israeli military court Thursday, the soldiers have been charged with abuse and aggravated assault and included a list of several things that they did that I won't go into here because, well, it really just breaks my heart. I will point out, however, that the government of Israel does not condone or applaud this behavior, nor do they provide the families of these soldiers with lifetime pensions. They investigated and indicted them of these crimes as they should have been. So those who look at the actions of a those who look at the actions of a few Israelis and condemn the whole state of Israel and try to provide this moral equivalence, there really is none when the leaders of Israel condemn it and they do something about it. They don't applaud it and provide pensions. Okay, I want to shift a bit to the aforementioned Iranian-Syria perpetual crisis. This is a pretty interesting article out of the Wall Street Journal, January 30th. U.S. asks Western allies to help form buffer zone in northern Syria. So basically what's going on is that the U.S. is seeking out its Western allies to create a buffer zone in the northern part of Syria. President Trump, as you probably know, has ordered 2,000 U.S. troops out of Syria, which has created no less than a firestorm across the political landscape. Even Mitch McConnell today leading the way to a vote of 68 to 23 to rebuke the, quote, precipitous withdrawal of U.S. troops. The article goes on to state, the difficulty in getting allies on board with the plan, details of which hadn't previously been discussed, is the latest challenge administration officials face as they search for a way to satisfy President Trump's withdrawal order and avoid potentially adverse effects of a pullout including an Islamic State rebound or a war between Turkish forces and Kurdish fighters. And look, I'll admit that that's, that's a legit concern, especially with Iraq in the rearview mirror. It's something to strongly consider and make sure we don't repeat. It continues, The administration hopes to persuade allies, including the UK, France, and Australia, to take responsibility for northern Syria, both to address Turkish concerns about Kurdish separatists in Syria while keeping Turkey's forces away from U.S.-backed Syrian Kurdish fighters who've been battling Islamic State. And, of course, if we know anything about President Trump, 
He is not taking today's Senate decision lying down. Here is how he responded in his normal avenue of Twitter today. He said, I inherited a total mess in Syria and Afghanistan. The endless wars of unlimited spending and death. During my campaign, I said very strongly that these wars must finally end. We spent $50 billion a year. Can you fathom that number? $50 billion a year in Afghanistan and have hit them so hard that we are now talking peace after 18 long years. Syria was loaded with ISIS until I came along. We will soon have destroyed 100% of the caliphate but we will be watching them closely. It is now time to start coming home and, after many years, spending our money wisely. Certain people must get smart. (laughs) Gotta love how he ends off his tweets. What's perhaps most interesting about all of this, as uh, the Daily Caller actually points out, is that the Senate Democrats' most leftist members sided with Trump. (laughs) His greatest enemies sided with him on this one. The Daily Caller says prospective presidential candidates, including Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, Democratic Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren, and Democratic New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, had endorsed Trump's plan to withdraw troops from Afghanistan and Syria, reported the New York Times. The Senate's Thursday rebuke is largely symbolic, but is expected to be rolled into a, quote, broader bipartisan Middle East policy bill, expected to easily pass the Senate next week, according to the Times. We will, of course, continue to follow those developments. And speaking of Syria, I came across an interview last week with a Kurdish commander, Mazlum Kobani, that he did with the AFP. He had some interesting things to say about the so-called ISIS caliphate which has basically been reduced to a small pocket of a few hundred fighters defending just a couple of villages. I'm going to completely botch this, but I'm going to attempt to say the names. Uh, Marashida and Baghuz Falkani. So Marashida and Baghuz Falkani that are on the banks of the Euphrates River a few miles from the Iraqi border in southeastern Syria for the Washington Post. So Kobani, this Kurdish commander, says he expects that the caliphate will be defeated in a month. This was about nine days ago that this interview came out. So we're, I mean, the the time's a ticking. Listen to what he said. Kobani says, the operation of our forces against IS in its last pocket has reached its end and IS fighters are now surrounded in one area. Aslum Kobani, the chief of the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces, told AFP, With backing from the U.S.-led coalition, the SDF are in the last phase of an operation started on September 10th to defeat the jihadists in the Euphrates Valley in eastern Syria. Quote, We need to spend a month to eliminate IS remnants still in the area, said Kobani who spoke to AFP on Thursday near the northeastern Syrian city of Hasaka. So how about that? (laughs) This is going to be fascinating to watch and see if it actually happens. ISIS, 
ISIS is so horrendous, they've even made Al-Qaeda wince at some of their brutal tactics. So their defeat in a month or so will be interesting to watch. I certainly hope and pray it happens. That, of course, will also help what we just discussed with President Trump. It will help his argument that he can safely pull his troops out of Syria. So, you know, he's likely invested in seeing that happen. So, we'll, again, we'll just watch. We'll see what happens. Also, if you're a little confused about the Kurds, who they are, like some in Syria, some in Turkey, you know, some in Iraq or whatever, there's a great piece by Lee Smith in the Washington Times that provides a great overview of the Kurdish people and their political movements, including an informative map, give you a visual idea of what's going on with the Kurds. I actually knew a guy who lived in a Kurdish state uh, a while ago and met him, and I know that he was really hoping for them to have their own state at some point, uh, a desire I share with him. But I will link to that article at mideastnewsbrief.com in the show notes with this show so you can read more about that if you are interested. Okay, let's shift over to Iran more specifically with a few noteworthy news items. This is from Al Jazeera, January 24th. New U.S. sanctions target Iran-backed fighters in Syria. The United States has announced new sanctions on two Iran-backed militias fighting in Syria and a move aimed at raising pressure on Tehran and the powerful Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps as Washington prepares for a military withdrawal from the war-torn country. The Fatimiyun Division comprising Afghan nationals and the, give this one a try, Zanabayun Brigade, comprising Pakistani fighters, were placed on the U.S. Treasury's financial blacklist. So they are now on the United States Treasury's blacklist. That is a place you do not want to be. Why? Because it aims to cut off their access to international financial networks to choke their operations. Both militias are recruited by Iran's elite military unit, the IRGC, the Treasury said, from communities of refugees and migrants living inside Iran. Aren't, aren't these guys just charmers? And sent to fight for the Bashar al-Assad regime in Syria. The brutal Iranian regime exploits refugee communities in Iran and uses them as human shields for the Syrian conflict. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin said in a statement, The Treasury's targeting of Iran-backed militias and other foreign proxies is part of our ongoing pressure campaign to shut down the illicit networks the regime uses to export terrorism and unrest across the globe. Mike Pompeo, U.S. Secretary of State, he also chimed in on this, and he went to Twitter saying he accused Iran of praying on refugees and using them as, quote, cannon fodder in Syria. It's hard to get more uncomplimentary than that, but that's essentially what Iran is doing by exploiting these communities of refugees and migrants in Iran. Plus, Netanyahu gets tough with Major General Qasem Soleimani, the commander of the IRGC Quds Force, who, if you weren't 
looking at him close enough, I could be mistaken for John Goldsmith, the most interesting man in the world. First, I could see Solomonai saying, I do not always use intercontinental ballistic missiles, but when I do, I aim them at Israel. Say nuclear, my friends. I'm so sorry for that. I just, I just couldn't help myself. Okay, so here's what the Jerusalem Post states and why Netanyahu was talking tough with this guy. The Jerusalem Post reports, Iran's commander of the IRGC Quds Force, Major General Qasem Soleimani, was less than an hour's drive away from Israel's border on Friday, according to a report by Kuwaiti paper Al-Jarida. This visit, the report claimed, is what triggered Israel's rare daytime strikes on Iranian targets in the vicinity of Damascus International Airport on Sunday. This, in turn, led to Iranian forces launching a surface-to-surface missile towards northern Israel an hour later. Quoting a source, the report said that Soleimani, one of the most prominent and influential military figures in Iran, and of course the most interesting, visited eastern Garia in the Dara province less than 40 kilometers from the Israeli-controlled Golan Heights. According to the source, Soleimani's visit to a home in the area between 8 to 10 p.m. was monitored by intelligence officials. So, this was not okay for the most interesting terrorist commander in the world to be doing, as the article goes on to say that Soleimani's visit to a location less than 40 kilometers from the ceasefire line in the Golan Heights violated a previous U.S.-Russian-Israeli agreement regarding the Iranian presence in the war-torn country, the report said. Okay, so what was Netanyahu's response, which was what this was all about? Netanyahu took to Twitter and said, instead of interfering with the elections, the Soleimani better check the status of the Iranian bases that he is trying to establish in Syria. As long as I'm prime minister, we won't stop fighting against them. So Israel has actually become much more ostentatious in their declarations that we are striking Iranian targets, and this is what we're doing, and deal with it. So, of course, we'll continue to monitor this, but it's also during an Israeli election, If you live in Israel, foreign policy is top on your mind, and you want a tough leader, Benjamin Netanyahu is portraying that, and he's acting like that. So I expect him to win if the state doesn't indict him, and he actually can't serve. So we'll we'll see what happens. But there's so much more uh, we could say about all of this, and there are some topics of anti-Semitism out of Ireland, and even here in the good old U.S. of A. I want to get to, but we'll have to hit those next week. I now want to shift from geopolitics a bit and end the show with what has recently become a strong interest of mine, and that is archaeology, especially as it pertains to the Middle East. So now my plan on the show is to, from time to time, discuss recent or breaking archaeological findings in the Middle East, biblically or non-biblically related, as it's all just simply fascinating. So with this being the first podcast, I wanted to actually talk about an archaeological discovery that's been around for a while, but I believe every single person on Earth, and or if you end up on Mars one day, should know about. And what is it? Maybe you've heard of it. Yes, I know what you're thinking. It's none other than the Tel Dan 
inscription. So what is the Tel Dan inscription? It's actually the first evidence we have of the existence of King David of Samuel Kings and Chronicles fame outside of the Hebrew Bible. As if that wasn't enough, <laughs> right? I mean, maybe you don't ascribe to all the stories in the Bible, but to doubt such a prominent figure simply because we haven't found his name etched on a rock somewhere, I, I don't get it. Anyway, well, the skeptics were certainly quieted when this discovery was literally unearthed in 1993. This is from the Biblical Archaeology Society, September 10th, 2018 article. Few modern biblical archaeology discoveries have caused as much excitement as the Tel Dan inscription. Writing on a 9th century BC stone slab, or stella, so if you ever hear the word stella in the archaeological world, it's referring to a stone slab, that furnished the first historical evidence of King David from the Bible. The Tel Dan inscription, or House of David inscription, was discovered in 1993 at the site of Tel Dan in northern Israel in an excavation directed by Israeli archaeologist Avraham Baran. The broken and fragmentary inscription commemorates the victory of an Aramean king over his two southern neighbors, the, quote, king of Israel and the, quote, king of the house of David. Note this also backs up the biblical description of a divided Israel during this time, so that's, that's important. In the carefully incised text written in neat Aramaic characters, the Aramean king boasts that he, under the divine guidance of the god Hadad, vanquished several thousand Israelites and Judahite horsemen and charioteers before personally dispatching both of his royal opponents. Unfortunately, the recovered fragments of the House of David inscription do not preserve the names of the specific kings involved in this brutal encounter. But most scholars believe the Stella recounts a campaign of Hazael of Damascus in which he defeated both Jehoram of Israel and Ahaziah of Judah. Guys, this was unprecedented. The inscription proves that King David was an actual historical figure, not some concoction from scribes consuming too many fermented grapes as they lounge by the Pool of Siloam or wherever, right? I mean, since the 1800s, so-called scholars said King David couldn't have existed because there's no archaeological evidence. And aside from that being bad logic and the glaring disdain for the biblical evidence, which is overwhelming, boom, here it is. And of course, I will have the link to this and all of these stories up at midisnewsbrief.com. All right, let's end end off the show now with our quote of the week. Yes, we're going to do that each week. It won't always be about foreign policy, but since this is the First podcast, I figured I'd end us off with a great one from the Gipper himself, Ronald Reagan, who is, of course, was, of course, quite the foreign policy hawk. And he said, weakness, after all, is a temptation. It tempts the pugnacious to assert themselves. But strength is a declaration that cannot be misunderstood. Strength is a condition that declares actions have consequences. 
strength is a prudent warning to the belligerent that aggression need not go unanswered. All right, well, that will do it for this very first edition of the Mideast News Brief Podcast. Thank you guys so much for joining us. And be sure to head to MideastNewsBrief.com to subscribe to the podcast or on your favorite podcasting app. You can also get this podcast and the transcript of this show, as well as links to the articles discussed over at MideastNewsBrief.com. We look forward to seeing all of you here again next week.